0: Welcome to this extra Hope Awakens program. We're so glad to have you joining us, especially if you're here for the first time. Our last program, Beyond the Light, was just awesome. If you missed it, make sure to catch up on that episode or any of our previous programs on our website, hopeawakens.com.au. This morning's program is called Lockdown A Planet in Isolation. It has me curious because I'm pretty sure it's not about COVID. But before we go to John, we have some viewer questions that Robbie will answer.
1: Hi, Rebecca. Good morning and good morning to our viewers. For many of you, this may be your first Sabbath. Isn't it great to get time off the treadmill of work and more work and rush and more rush and take off a whole day to spend with our great God? And I agree with you, Rebecca. Rebecca. Last night's program was fantastic. Now, we have some very interesting questions once again this morning. Question number one. John briefly mentioned haunted houses. Don't the dead sometimes haunt houses? A very good question indeed. Now, last night, John didn't have time to show every text on the subject. But there is a Bible text that answers your question specifically. For example... In Job chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, we read this. As the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. Now, that's pretty clear, isn't it? And as John said, it's not uh, the spirits of dead people, it's evil spirits or evil angels that are haunting houses. Our next question is, Didn't King Saul see Samuel, the prophet, after he died? Very good question. Once again, John briefly mentioned this in his presentation, but let's go to the story found in 1 Samuel chapter 28. We'll see clearly that Saul did not see Samuel, but an evil spirit. Let's pick it up in 1 Samuel 28 verse 3. Now Samuel had died and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. So the Bible is telling us in the story that Samuel has died. And we know that when a person dies, they don't come back up. We just saw that in that previous question. So next in the story, Saul is described as going to inquire of God. But God doesn't answer him in the story. So next, he goes to a medium and asks her to call up Samuel. And notice what it says in 1 Samuel 28, verse 12. When the woman saw Samuel, this is the Spiritus, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up and he's covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. So you see, Saul never saw Samuel. It was the medium that saw a spirit, which we know from our previous presentation they're nothing more than angels, in this case, fallen angels. So again, there's no contradiction in the Bible. When it says the dead do not know anything, it's because, well, the dead don't know anything. So I hope that clears up that question. Question number three. Doesn't Colossians 2.16 indicate that the seventh day Sabbath is no longer important for us to keep? Great question once again. Let's look at that passage again. Colossians chapter 2 verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So notice in this verse, as John mentioned in the last presentation, it's talking about the ceremonial or the annual Sabbaths, it's not talking about the weekly Sabbath. Remember, in Hebrew, this word Sabbath literally just means rest. But notice once again, in verse 17, Paul is telling us that these ceremonial drink and food offerings and new moons and annual rests they're all shadows of things to come, which Paul says was Jesus. So the ceremonial system ends with Jesus, which is why, thank goodness, we don't perform sacrifices anymore. Because Jesus, who all these things pointed to, fulfilled that. So you'll notice that we're not talking about the weekly Sabbath in these passages. Paul's talking about the shadow of things to come, whereas the Sabbath points us back to God as our creator. Well, that's all the time we have for this morning, Rebecca. So back to you.
0: Thanks, Robbie, for your very clear answers. Before we go to John's presentation, please remember that we also have our regular program tonight at the usual time. It's titled, The New Normal, A World Without Fear. Without further ado, let's join John as he talks this morning about lockdown, a planet in isolation.
2: We are going to pray together and then dive into our Bible subject. Let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for the opportunity to come to your word. And now speak to us. It's your word. Guide us by your spirit. Give us hope Help us to navigate the confusing maze that is this world right now. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our subject is a planet in lockdown. And that's been an interesting feature of this whole pandemic lockdown. Not every place has called it that. Some have called it shelter in place or stay at home. Wuhan, China, the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak, was under lockdown for 76 days. A third of the world's population has been on lockdown. Now, some places have begun to ease restrictions. But in spite of that, we've been told the effects of this will stay for a while. Germany has announced that Oktoberfest, which happens mostly in September, Septemberfest, will not happen this year. In Spain, people were not allowed to leave their homes except to buy food and medical supplies or to walk the dog. Only reasons you were allowed out. Anyone who broke the rules faced fines of more than a $1,000. Children weren't allowed outside at all for six weeks, even to accompany their parents to the grocery store. Schools in most all countries have been closed, with students doing classes online in many places. When New Zealand eased restrictions and went from level four to level three, which was described as level four with fast food, McDonald's ran out of lettuce, KFC ran out of chicken and police had to control crowds at burger joints. Says something about priorities. Lockdown, social distancing. Now, the effects of locking down a society or prolonged social distancing can be very serious. The divorce rate is evidently going up in many places. Incidents of domestic violence also up, and that's very serious. And someone just two nights ago asked me to pray for her elderly mother. Like so many elderly people, she's cut off from the outside world, cut off from those she loves, and it's a real challenge. This person said to me, my mother has been crying about how hard this is. In many places, funerals haven't been happening or they're taking place with just the fewest amount of people present. So lockdown means that people haven't even been able to grieve in the customary way, in the, the healthy way. In some locations, people have been flouting the rules. You've heard about that. Some places, people have been protesting and this is out of anger, which comes from frustration. But why the isolation? Why the lockdowns? It's because authorities have been wanting to contain a deadly virus. They're wanting to keep it from spreading. Well, right now, I am going to share with you that there is coming a time when this entire planet will be on lockdown for essentially the same reason. To flatten the curve, to contain a deadly virus, to contain sin and to stop it from spreading. The good news is that this lockdown we're looking at is only temporary and it will be the last time we ever see a planet on lockdown. Now, the idea of isolation or quarantine isn't new. You could say the first quarantined family was Noah's family, quarantined on an ark before, during, and after the worst storm ever to strike planet Earth. There's an interesting passage of the Bible dealing with a time still in the future. In fact, after the return of Jesus. Here's what the Bible says about Jesus' return. First Thessalonians chapter 4, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Jesus is going to come back to this earth. That's what we are all looking forward to. That he came to earth a first time is an indisputable fact. He came as the Messiah. And let me say something. People will say, I have no problem with Jesus. He was a good man. Oh, no, you can't get away with that. He was either the Messiah or a bad man. Only a crazy man would think that he was sent by God and then allow himself to be nailed to a cross for someone else's sins and tell others that that's why he was here. So you can't sit on the fence on this one. Jesus is either who he says he is, the divine son of God, or he was a madman bereft of good sense. If he was a madman, so be it. But if he wasn't, I don't know how you could ignore him. After 4,000 years, the world was at an exceedingly low ebb. God's own people had turned their back on him to the extent that they held the prophecies of the Messiah in their hands And yet they weren't ready to accept the Messiah when he came to earth. Even when the wise men came from the east and asked about the Messiah, Herod the king gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. This wasn't done secretly. The religious leaders were summoned by the king. There are some characters here who have traveled a very long way to find the Messiah. What's that all about? Where will the Messiah be born? They consulted the ancient scrolls and they said to him, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. See, the prophet Micah said Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So they knew Herod dispatches the wise men to Bethlehem, Off they go. They don't bring the child back to Jerusalem as Herod asked, but instead they go to their home country without returning to Jerusalem. Matthew 2.16 says, Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Everyone in Jerusalem knew about the visit of the wise men. Everyone in town knew about the agitated king, and they didn't trust him. Herod was cold-hearted, ruthless, nihilistic. He had members of his own family put to death, including wives and children. When all of those poor children in Bethlehem were killed, what do you think the talk of the town was? Herod, he was told the Messiah was in Bethlehem. But those visitors from the east didn't do what he asked. He's worried about another king rising up. And don't you think people would have said, Messiah? Oh, yes, the Messiah. Daniel's prophecy had told them about it way back then. It had forecast when Messiah would arise. They had the scrolls. They had the malevolent Herod sounding the alarm about the Messiah being in their midst. And Israel still cratered morally and religiously. Jesus came into the world at its nadir, its low point, and he is going to come back again as it was in the days of Noah. The signs around us suggest he's going to come back soon. 2,000 years ago, Jesus spoke of pestilences, SARS, and Ebola, and swine flu, and bird flu, and mad cow, and the Zika virus, remember that? COVID-19, we are there, ladies and gentlemen. And remember what Jesus said, Luke 21, verse 28. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. He's coming back. Let me tell you that again. He's coming back. And when he does, Paul wrote, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now I want to look at a stunning piece of writing found just inside the back cover of the Bible. It is chapter 1187 of the Bible. It is Revelation chapter 20. Revelation was written by John, the beloved disciple, while he was under house arrest on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. Patmos is a Greek island, even though it's 35 miles from Turkey and 160 miles from Athens. It's about one third the size of Manhattan. In Revelation 19, John has described the return of Jesus to the world. And so now he starts Revelation chapter 20 by saying, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the, of the dragon that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. This is the millennium that you hear about. Now, many people believe that Jesus is going to reign on the earth during the millennium. So let's look and see what's going on. An angel comes down from heaven, takes hold of the devil, binds him for a thousand years, a millennium. The angel is depicted as, as having a chain Is depicted as tying up the devil with that chain. Verse 3. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So Satan is bound and Satan cannot deceive anyone for a thousand years. But then he'll be released for a while. The question is, how do you bind an angel, a fallen angel? And what's this bottomless pit that he's placed into? It could be that he's dropped into a really deep hole. Or let's remember what happens when Jesus returns. This is second Peter three verse 10. "But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the element will melt, the elements will melt with fervent heat." Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. You'll remember the return of Jesus depicted in Daniel 2. The stone cut out without hands, it lands on the feet of the image and sweeps away the kingdoms of the world. When Jesus comes back, the world is destroyed. Paul wrote about those who will be destroyed with the brightness of his coming. The destroyed earth is now represented as a bottomless pit, an abyss, if you'd like to look at the original language. Satan is bound because he's confined here. He's isolated. He's quarantined on this desolate earth with no one to tempt. The earth is in lockdown at this time. When Jesus returns, the earth is destroyed. Satan is bound. But we read that after this, Satan is going to be released for a time. Look at verse 4 with me. tells us some things. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Notice there are people here who had died, but now they're alive. That means there has to have been a resurrection. We read earlier that when Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ shall rise. And here are those who have been raised and they are shown as being with Jesus. So where are they? If they're with Jesus, they're in heaven. Remember what Jesus said in John 14? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Jesus returns. We are out of here. We are go to heaven. The earth is destroyed. Satan is bound here for a millennium. The planet will be in lockdown. Now, why would that be? I want to suggest something to you. The millennium time period is a time when God will not only be just, but he will be seen to be just. There will be some major questions being asked throughout the universe. Now, I don't know for sure, but if an angel had been in heaven for how many years? Might it ever occur to God that before this angel is forever punished, that everyone in the universe should see that Satan is beyond help, that he would never, ever repent? Satan is bound for a thousand years. Now don't get me wrong. I'm certainly not suggesting God is giving him a chance to repent. He's not. But he's showing us that even after a thousand years of reflecting upon the misery he has caused, and remember he's on a desolated earth, thinking about the lives that he has cost, the destruction that he's brought about, and the pain that he has delivered to the heart of God, we see even after all of that, Satan is still thoroughly wicked and completely lost. Bound for a thousand years. Jesus returns. There's a resurrection. The saved go to heaven. Satan is bound here on the earth. Revelation 20 verse 5. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. And then referring back to the first resurrection, John writes, this is the first resurrection. Now notice something. The lost live again. Isn't that something? Destroyed when Jesus returns, there's a second resurrection at the end of the thousand years. When the thousand years are finished, John 5, starting in verse 28, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Two resurrections. The resurrection to life when Jesus returns. The resurrection to condemnation at the end of the thousand years. Look at verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him how long? A thousand years. Now, we'll talk in our next presentation about the second death. But look at this. Those who are raised in the first resurrection, raised to meet Jesus when he returns, they will be priests with God and will reign with him for a thousand years. You know, there's something about human beings that Satan understands well. You've likely heard of that famous marshmallow experiment conducted back in 1972. Walter Mitchell was a psychologist at Stanford University, California. He carried out an experiment in which a child was offered a small reward right away, or two small rewards if they waited 15 minutes. During the 15 minutes, the researcher left the room. The kids got either a marshmallow or a pretzel stick. One now, two later if you don't eat the one now. The experiment was designed to shed light on delayed gratification, how people differentiate between taking something now or waiting for something better later. This is a challenge we face with matters of eternity. We tend to think of what we can get in this world as the goal. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not against achieving and having and so forth in this world. Wealth is certainly not a sin. And if God blesses you with money and possessions, then you can thank Him for that and honor Him through them. But the challenge arises when we see cars and homes and money as the goal, as the main priority, rather than seeing heaven as the priority, honoring God as the priority. Jesus offers you peace in this world. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you a life of meaning, a life of integrity. The world tends to offer us the things that are shallow and unimportant, and we can confuse the two or prioritize wrong. A Stanford marshmallow test might, might just be this, our marshmallow test. God offers us the opportunity to be priests of God and of Christ, and to reign with him for a thousand years. But we might tend to be distracted by the praise of others, by possessions, by the always changing fashions of the world. Let me encourage you. Paul wrote to the Colossians and said, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Notice, seek those things which are above. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Notice what the apostle said. Set your mind on things above. He said, Christ is our life. And when he comes back, we'll be with him in glory. Friend, how are your priorities? Where are you looking right now? One day we'll have the opportunity to sit with Jesus in heaven. And you'll be glad then that you didn't get sucked into the distractions of this old world. And look at what God says. He will do this for you. Look how hopeful this is. Ezekiel chapter 36, God says, a new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. You see what God will do in your life? He can change your heart, change your priorities, change your desires when he gives you a new heart. If you're thinking, my priorities are all wrong, So therefore, there's no hope for me. Look to what God does in your life. Look at how God can change your tastes and your desires and your wants and your priorities. A new heart. This is what God can do, what God will do. In fact, what God is waiting to do for you. How do you get that new heart? You ask him for it. You invite Jesus to take your heart and make it new. And then you believe that he's given you a new heart. You believe it. As Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Too many people sell God short. I'm an angry person and I'll always be this way. I'm a jealous person, a dishonest person, an immoral person, and I will always be this way. Well, if that's what you think... And that's what you'll be. <clears throat> but if you'll accept what Jesus has done for you, if you will believe that God forgives you and gives you a new heart, if you believe that Jesus lives his life in you when you invite him to do so, you'll experience a radical change in your mind and in your life. You'll grow. You'll develop as a believer. You might still make mistakes, but you'll grow. Some of your bad habits will just disappear. Others a little more stubborn, because maybe because of how you are wired, how deep they go, maybe because of your environment, because of whatever. But because you are looking in faith to Jesus, believing that he has forgiven you, you are going to continue to grow in his grace and experience more and more of his presence. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus spoke of heaven's work of grace in the human heart when he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Then he said in verse 28, for the earth yields crops by itself. Notice, first the blade, then the ear, after that, the full grain in the head. This is the work of grace in your life as you grow more and more, as Jesus' character is seen more and more in your life. Don't get discouraged if today you see that your priorities are out of whack, if you recognize right now that your main desire is not to reign with Christ, if you can admit that you are more enamored with getting stuff and consuming entertainment and letting your mind wander into unhealthy places, if that's your experience now, God wants to give you a new experience. And he will if you want it, if you ask for that, if you accept it from Jesus, right now. Revelation 20, verse 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from prison. The second resurrection has taken place. Satan is released from prison because he has someone to tempt again as the lost have been raised from the dead. Now, let me come back to something. Back in verse 4, we read that judgment was given to the saved in heaven. This is fascinating. I mentioned that God is going to be seen to be just in heaven. And here, while the world is in complete lockdown and the saved are in heaven for 1,000 years, God's people have the opportunity to look with God at his work of judgment. Imagine getting to heaven and finding that someone you thought would be there is not there or discovering that someone you were sure would not be there is there what god does is he opens up the books of a record so we can look into the into the decisions that he has made any questions you might have will be answered any thoughts you might have had they'll be addressed god is just and will be seen to be just paul wrote in 1st corinthians 6 do you not know that the saints will judge the world and then he wrote Do you not know that we shall judge angels? This is when that happens. We look into the decisions God has made in the judgment. And we'll agree that all of God's decisions are fair and just and right. So Satan is released from his prison. The lost have been raised from the dead. And this is the end of the 1000 years. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 8 that Satan will go out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Now, this is where we really need to look at how we interpret the Bible. Gog and Magog are sometimes interpreted to represent countries in Europe or in the Middle East. Russia and Turkey are frequently mentioned in some kind of end time war against Israel. But let's look at how we're going to interpret this. Gog and Magog, where do they first appear in the Bible? Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39. In Ezekiel, Gog and Magog represent the enemies of God. Now, the book of Revelation is written largely in figures. In types and images, almost three quarters of all the verses in Revelation contain references of some kind or quotes, direct quotes, from the Old Testament. The beasts in chapter 13, for example, those images are drawn from the book of Daniel. The woman in Revelation 17, drawn from the book of Jeremiah. The leaves on the tree of life that John wrote about, that comes from Ezekiel. John is writing to a people whose frame of reference is the Old Testament. So he's trying to describe a power in Earth's last days. And then he says, I know what. I'll go to the Old Testament, borrow the image of Babylon to represent this terrible power in Earth's last days. His readers read Babylon and Revelation and they say, oh, we know we know what he's talking about. We're familiar with that. We get that. So here he writes about Gog and Magog and his readers say, OK, we know that he's talking about the enemies of God because that's how Ezekiel used the phrase. The devil is going to deceive those who are opposed to God. And that's what he does. The lost are raised from the dead and they realize we have not been given immortality. We are still a mess. Satan inspires them to rebel against God so they can take the holy city because life is in there. Verse 9 shows us something. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. What city? It's the new Jerusalem, which has come down from heaven. You read that more clearly in chapter 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The New Jerusalem comes to the earth. The saved are on the inside. The lost are on the outside. Did you ever have an experience where you knew you'd missed out on something? It's usually not a great feeling. I've seen people miss buses or planes, and sometimes they're distraught because they just had to be on that bus or plane. But now you've got people who are outside the New Jerusalem. They realize now that it is forever too late. They simply cannot be saved. Imagine the desperation people will feel then. In Revelation 22, the picture is painted clearly. Jesus says, he who was unjust, let him be unjust still. He who was filthy, let him be filthy still. He who was righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. In Revelation 6, the Bible speaks of the return of Jesus when it says, then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island was moved out of its place and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. Imagine how you'd feel to know that you had every chance to follow and accept Jesus, and you hadn't taken it. In the Old Testament, the story is told of Esau, who sold the birthright, the special privileges that belonged to the firstborn. He sold the birthright for a meal of lentil stew. Why in the world would someone do that? Well, yeah, he was hungry, sure. But didn't he realize he would get over his hunger? He could have waited. If he really had wanted that food, he could have bought it without paying nearly so much. All that is true. But remember the marshmallow experiment carried out by Stanford University? People aren't good at delayed gratification. We want what we want, when we want it. Esau wanted that food. He was faint with hunger. He couldn't wait. Well, no, that's not right. He wouldn't wait. Can you think of there being a reason ever, ever a reason that you should wait to come to Jesus in faith? Let's think that through. According to the Bible, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin brings death with it. Because sin is us going our way and separating from God. God is vast, yet we separate from him because of sin. But what does the word of God tell us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So God's done what God can do. He says... Sin is going to cause you your existence. But instead of you dying, Jesus will die. Heaven loves you so much that heaven is willing to take the hit. And we can barely even imagine what the death of Jesus means to heaven, to God, to the Godhead. Jesus died for you. He says, if you'll just let me, I'll take your heart and do something special. Paul described it in Philippians chapter 2. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And we say, ah, but we're weak. Ah, but we're faulty. Oh, we're undeserving. You better believe that we're undeserving. No one's going to go to heaven because they deserve. We're going to go there because Jesus deserves. And he's offered you everlasting life. By the way, don't think for a moment that everlasting life takes away your fun, or removes the things that you love. No, no. Everlasting life comes into your life so that your experience on this earth is better. You love life even more. God bestows special gifts on you. And as you feed on his word more and more, you appreciate more and more the things of heaven. You get to know God well, you'll love him well. Philippians 1 and verse 6 says, "...being confident of this very thing." that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus gets into your life and he does the work that you could never do. Our role is to say, go ahead, do your work. Let me simply follow you. Do your will. I'll do things your way. That's Christianity. There is a God who loves me, a savior who died for me. His way is better. I want that done in my life so that I can live with integrity, honor God, and throughout eternity be with those who love me most. Jesus gave us wonderful instruction in Luke chapter 22 when he prayed and he said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Do you think Jesus wanted to go to that old rugged cross and die that awful death? Do you think he wanted to do that? Oh no, take it away. But not my will, your will. We can pray that same prayer today. Not my will, your will. There is coming a day soon when the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down from God out of heaven. And you can be in that. The earth is going to be made new. All new. He's making it new for you. And Why would you miss that? Why would you miss that? There will be people on the outside of the holy city looking in, knowing they can never get in. In that time, everyone who has ever lived will be together in one place at one time. And those on the outside know that they're lost. Don't be there. Jesus is encouraging you to be on the inside of that city. Revelation 20 verse 9. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Jesus is inviting. He's knocking on the door of your heart, inviting you to give him your heart, bidding you come to me. He's coming back soon. What would the second coming of Jesus be like? The heavens depart as a scroll and Jesus comes riding down through the great corridors of space. And why is he coming back? He's coming back for you. After Jesus returns, the millennium takes place. After the millennium, we're back on an earth that is recreated, maybe right before our eyes. He invites, it's for us to accept. But I'm weak, He's strong. I'm sinful, He's holy and pure. He will unite His life with your life and make that one great life for eternity. You want that life? I think you do let's pray with me now let's pray Father in heaven we thank you for Jesus for the hope we have in the second coming of Jesus we look forward Lord to that time when Jesus returns and now we're going to claim Jesus by faith friend will you do that we claim him by faith we accept his righteousness so that based on what Jesus has done we may inherit everlasting life now take our lives and make them yours we pray in Jesus name Amen.
1: Incredible. Wasn't that just fantastic? What a relief to know that not only are people not roasting and toasting now in hell, but that when the fires of hell have consumed those who cling to sin, that those fires will go out and not burn people forever and ever. God sure has been given some bad press through this teaching of hellfire. In fact, Many people have become atheists because of it. Now, remember that we have our regular program tonight, as usual, called The New Normal, A World Without Fear. Don't miss it, whatever you do. So Rebecca, back to you.
0: Now Robbie, can you tell us once again about these exciting upcoming masterclasses that Gary announced?
1: We know that many of you are really enjoying the series Hope Awakens and we've heard so much feedback that you want to go deeper. So again, we're excited to announce that very, very soon we'll be offering a number of masterclasses where you can connect with expert teachers in various areas all over Australia and New Zealand. So if you're interested in joining a masterclass, take out your phone now and text the code word LEARN. If you're in Australia, text LEARN to 28 833 386 If you're in New Zealand, text LEARN to 875. Again, if you're in Australia, text LEARN to 28 833 386 Or if you're in New Zealand, text LEARN to 875. We'll then send you a form with some topics that we'll be offering masterclasses on And all you need to do is indicate which ones you're interested in, and then we'll let you know when and what classes we'll be offering. So we're pretty excited. Rebecca, back to you.
0: Thanks, Robbie. This morning's presentation brings such relief to my heart, and I'm sure it does to our viewers. To know that the Bible teaches that there's no such thing as a fire that burns people forever and ever throughout eternity, definitely an eye-opener. Now to get this morning study guide, just go to hopeawakens.com.au and click on the free offer link. And remember, as Robbie said, we have our regular Saturday night program tonight at the same time of 7.30. It's called The New Normal, A World Without Fear. See you then.